Okay, let's, uh, let's take a moment and look at the scripture. If you'll turn in, uh, in your Bible to the book of Acts. How many know that this is Pentecost Sunday? This is Pentecost Sunday. And I wanted to just read an excerpt from, uh, most of you have my book on Pentecost, but I wanted to read an excerpt out of the introduction. You know, I think a lot of times there have been misunderstandings about Pentecost, and we try to doctrinize it and make it about a denomination when the truth is, I believe that Pentecost was about the birth of the church. Let me just read just a couple of paragraphs out of the introduction, Pilgrimage to Pentecost. I believe Pentecost was and is God's destiny for the church as well as the individual believer. Not in the doctrinal sense that you might imagine, but rather in that it was the birthday of a movement of believers that would be called the church. I also believe that the day of Pentecost was the converging point of all of God's dealings with man from the beginning. It's as if all of the Old Testament events and characters, all the covenants and prophecies, were aiming at one focal point in history, the day the church would be born and released with power to fulfill the purpose of God. Pentecost would signal the birth of a mighty nation, a spiritual nation of people that now is emerging into its third millennium of existence. It would also ignite a divine fire that is destined to burn throughout eternity as God reveals his eternal purpose in the church. There cannot be a Pentecost without a Calvary. And Calvary is incomplete without a Pentecost. Often we've acted as if these two events were unrelated, as if they had little to do with one another. But we must realize that our journey of redemption that travels through Calvary is leading us to Pentecost. It moves us from the passion of the Christ to the purpose of the church. This move will involve a pilgrimage, a journey, no doubt filled with difficult moments and events that can shake the very foundations of who we are. But if we persevere, if we continue on, we will arrive at our Pentecost, our day of inheritance and empowerment, and there we become new men and new women and collectively a new people, a new race. And from there we will be sent forth with destiny in our hearts and God's purpose as the focus of our objectives. I want you to understand today that Pentecost had a purpose. God has a purpose. And on this day of Pentecost, I want to share a few ideas as we celebrate uh, and remember Pentecost Sunday. I want to share a few ideas with you in a message that I've entitled, The Cost of Everything. Somebody say with me, The Cost of Everything. You ever wondered what everything cost? I mean, you ever thought about that? Well, just looking at our grocery bill last week, I'm thinking it's pretty, it's pretty high up there because that one bill of groceries was like about half the national debt, you know. It's like, what, what is, well, actually, I did a little computations, a little research. This is what everything costs. If aliens arrived over our planet and negotiated a deal to buy it all, what would they have to pay in U.S. dollars? Well, something like one quadrillion. That's what everything costs in a natural sense. But I want to talk with you for a few moments about what everything costs in a larger sense. And let's look at the book of Acts. The book of Acts beginning in chapter number 1. I'm not going to have you stand. I know you've been up and down. Normally I would do that. But, well, let me, let me have you stand. I mean, my goodness, I, you know, it's not going to hurt you. How many, some of y'all, that's more exercise than you get all week coming to church. And I want to begin reading at verse number four, and I, I want to pray my vo- voice holds out. It's a little, my throat's a little sore this morning, but God's word's not sore. 
Uh, verse number four, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. I think it's interesting that sometimes we act as if the gift of the Holy Spirit were optional when Jesus felt like it was a necessity. Not in the sense of salvation, but in the sense of the task that the church would be uh, charged to accomplish. That to do what God had called us to do, Jesus said, whatever you do, do not miss this moment. Notice why. He gives us an explanation. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said unto them, It's not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for the unction of the Holy Spirit. I've already felt it in this service. Lord, the worship was beautiful, God, and we saw you. Our eyes were opened, Lord, and our lenses came into focus. And for a moment, we caught a glimpse of your radiant glory. And Lord, it's always humbling when we do that. And Lord, I, I now, Father, as we look into your word, let us understand, Lord, that when we look into your word, we are looking in a mirror, God, that we are looking and examining ourselves in light of your word. And we thank you for that clarity. Now, Lord, I pray that in these moments that we share, that you by your spirit will do what only you can do. Lord, let this be a day that is a catalyst and that it is a beginning of something wonderful and powerful. And everyone said in Jesus' name, amen. amen. You can be seated. So today is Pentecost Sunday. It's the day that we remember the birth of the church and celebrate not just the birth of the church, but the purpose of the body of Christ in the earth. This is what the church is really, isn't it? It's the body of Christ. Pentecostal and Baptist and Methodist, Presbyterian and other denominations where Jesus is Lord and accepted as Savior. I don't believe for a minute that God is concerned with the labels to which we ascribe to ourselves. I believe that he is more concerned with whether our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So the church is not about denominations, divisions, or petty doctrines that tend to divide us. It's about a force in the earth that was ordained by God to do his bidding in the earth. Now, I'm going to say some things today that I believe are important and I believe that are powerful for you, but you have to follow what I'm saying. I'm going to try my best to follow my script because I want, I've prayed over this. I've already been to the Lord's table this morning and I've been with him and I believe this is his heart for us. So look at your neighbor and say, let's tune in. You see, it's the church's duty and sacred responsibility to seek God's will. His will that is being done in heaven, that it would be done on earth. The church was ordained by God to be a force in the earth. And what is the church? It's all of us as we as members are fitly joined together. We cannot say that we are a body if we are walking around separated and divided. We have to find common ground on which to stand and from which we are to declare that Jesus Christ is alive and well and a force to be reckoned with in this world. 
It is for this purpose, listen, it is for this purpose that the Holy Spirit was given and that you have been promised power. It's not just power so you can have a happy life. It's not just power so you can indulge the the desires and the appetites of your flesh. It's power to be his witnesses and to speak on his behalf, to identify, discern his will, and then be an agent of appropriating that will in earth as it's already being done in heaven. You have a divine responsibility. And we read that in Acts 1 and 8. And you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Our job is not to be politically correct or play nice with the spirit of the age that seeks to silence the voice of God and destroy truth and morality. I'm going to say that again. Our job in the church is not to be politically correct or play nice with the spirit of the age that seeks to to silence the voice of God, destroy truth, and to destroy morality. Our job is to represent God in this world by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is to empower us to stand in a wicked and perverse generation and to stand for truth, proclaim truth, and die for that truth if we must. It is the story of the book of Acts. It's not the Acts of the Apostles. It's the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles and the early church. And when we see that going on, it's interesting what we see. As a matter of fact, if we're talking about the spirit-filled life that came on the day of Pentecost at the birthday of the church, what did it look like when believers were acting in that power of the Holy Spirit and in a spirit-filled life? Well, let's turn over just a little deeper, if you will, to the book of Acts chapter 4 and let's get a snapshot of the spirit-endued apostles. And I'm going to read a rather lengthy passage of Scripture, but I think it's important as I lay the foundation for what's on my heart today. Verse 1 of chapter 4 says, Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, now these are the apostles uh, who were, had just healed the lame man. And that man, you know the story, had been healed. He'd laid there for so many years asking alms at Gate Beautiful. And as, as, as Peter and John came to the gate that day, they said, um, we don't have any money, but what we do have, listen, what we do have, we give to you in the name of Jesus. He didn't say in the name of a higher power or what's the politically correct phrase to say. Right there in public in front of everybody, they reached out to a man in trouble and called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That got them in trouble. They were brought before the Sanhedrin. This is what we're seeing. And now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed. Notice what that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed. So the preachers are getting arrested and there's a revival happening in the aftermath. Without preachers to officiate or anyone to pray them through, simply based on the preaching of Jesus Christ and the power of the resurrection, people's lives are being changed and souls are being... Right in the middle of persecution, the church is growing. And notice the impact. However, many of those heard the word, believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. 
And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as of were the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they brought the preachers, the apostles in, they set them in this room, the hall of hewn stones and the portico of the temple where, where judgments, it was the supreme court, if you will, of the nation of Israel. They brought them before the court if I can say it that way. And they set them in the midst and they said, by what power or by what name have you done this? Peter being filled with the Holy Spirit. Are y'all in the room with me this morning? Peter didn't start speaking in tongues. He didn't start prophesying. That doesn't mean he didn't do those things. But in this moment, the writer Luke underscores for us that by the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all, that to all the people, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you you whole. I don't know. Does that make you want to shout? It makes me want to shout. Right in the highest court of the land when they were brought in. They didn't have a legal team with them. They didn't have the defenders with them. They stood up with boldness that was emboldened by the power of the Holy Spirit. Whom you have crucified, God has raised from the dead. By him this man stands before you whole. Notice it gets worse. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven. This, listen, Peter is saying this before the court. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby men must be saved. This, you understand, this wasn't in the quiet catacombs of some ecclesiastical theological classroom. This wasn't where there were spiritual men debating the, the essence of Christianity and the incarnation of Jesus, uh, God in the flesh. This wasn't in some protected, hallowed hall where there's nothing going on but theological debate. This was in the highest court of the land where this man of God put his finger before the court and said, your lawlessness, your immorality, your, 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 your rejection, of God you crucified you but God raised him from the dead and that's how this man got healed hallelujah you say wow yes kind of it looks pretty intense uh, brother Phil but notice verse 13 now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men they marveled <laughs> and they realized that they had been with Jesus Your highest, most noble pursuit as a member of the church of Jesus Christ in the earth is that men when they're with you and women when they're with you might say in the aftermath of that encounter, certainly this person has been with Jesus. It's not what is your doctrine. It's not what is your denomination. It's have you been hanging out with the resurrected Nazarene? And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do? 
to these men. For indeed, that it is indeed a notable miracle has been done through them. It's evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further. Listen, it's a spirit. So that it spreads no further among the people. Let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. You understand the conspiracy, satanic conspiracy, to cause the church to believe that we have no legitimate right to call upon the name of Jesus in the public arena is the same spirit of Antichrist that the disciples and the apostles contended with in the first century church. It is the same spirit. There's nothing new. It's not not some new idea or new invention that has been conceived in the heart of the devil. It's the same idea. We cannot allow people to hear the truth and the power of Jesus Christ because they will be changed. Look, thousands are coming to Christ. So we can't deny that the miracle was real. So let us threaten them severely and warn them that they speak to no one else in this name lest it spread further among the people. Y'all okay this morning? So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all. Listen. Not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you. You know, this, this court had great sway in the Jewish life. It was they, what he is saying is, I do not take lightly the authority of this court. But notice what he says. So they called them together and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak of the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, somebody say further threatened them. They let them go, finding no way to punish them. It wasn't because they didn't want to punish them. They found no politically correct way to punish them because of the people since they all glorified God for what had been done for the man who was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. You see, when the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, he will stand up in you when you are faced with a challenge. Jesus said in John chapter 16 and verse 8, speaking of the Holy Spirit, we all want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We all, as believers, want to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. But what did Jesus say the Holy Spirit will do? And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Will he comfort? Yes, he is a comforter. How many felt the comforting power of the Holy Spirit as you've grieved over the loss of a loved one or you've had some sort of tragedy in your life or faced some calamity or challenge and you fell at the feet of the Lord and felt the great comfort of the Holy Spirit. But you know, it's not the only dimension or role of the Holy Spirit is comfort. There's another dimension. He wants to speak through his church to bring conviction of sin in the earth and of judgment. Are you all in the room? 
We don't preach a lot about that. We don't talk a lot about that because some way or other the church has been convinced that it's in our silence and our passivism. And listen, we want to make nice. We don't want anyone to think we're fanatics. And so we want to, we want to be viewed you know, as, as, as a sense of we're going to be crazy. And the world has sold us that bill of goods and in the process tried to silence the voice of the Holy Spirit that wants to speak through the church to call to account the wickedness of this world. I want to make a very important statement to you. And I want you to write it on the tablets of your heart. The purpose of the church is not just to win the lost. Yes, we do embrace the Great Commission. So the purpose is not just to win the lost, but it's also to speak the truth of God to the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Great Commission is our assignment, but we are also to be the conscience of the nations. We are also to be the conscience of the nations. Uh, I uh, serve on the board uh, at Ecclesia College, and one of our board members is a man named Eric Metaxas. And uh, Eric wrote the book a couple of years ago, I think it was 2010, Christian Book of the Year, called Bonhoeffer. Anybody seen that book? It's, it's a little intimidating to look at because it's like 450 pages long. But in it, he essentially chronicles the life of a Lutheran uh, preacher named Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was in his ministry during the rise of the Third Reich in Germany. It's interesting if you study the history of the church and its relationship with Hitler. It's interesting that you find that for a number of years they were on this platonic type of relationship where Hitler promised to leave them alone and you just tend to your, your flock and you do what you, you feel led, but just convince them that there should be a separation between church and state. He also convinced them that if they would leave him alone, he would leave them alone. That's how it began. Years begin to pass until new ideas and new ideologies begin to develop and people begin to have questions. And out of that movement, a church movement began to emerge that felt pressured to shift away from the authenticity of Scripture. Listen, the authenticity of Scripture and the authority of the Word of God to bring it to a contemporary interpretation where it fit more into the relevant pictures of modern society. An anti-establishment movement emerged because Hitler began to replace bishops who disagreed with that until eventually all of the bishops in that particular nation were under the control of the Gestapo. Churches that had been allowed to be free and preach what they wanted to preach were now having to bring their topical messages for approval from the Gestapo. Eventually, it wound up that you couldn't print a bulletin in your church unless it was approved by Friday evening at the Gestapo headquarters. Are y'all in the room with me? In that organized church, a secondary movement began to form called the Confessing Church. And what they meant by that is they were confessing the authority of the Scriptures as written and the authority of the believer and the priesthood of the believer. Though Hitler made great promises of leaving them alone, finally he reached his breaking point, and in one night, 700 were arrested. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, because he was considered to have the brightest theological mind in 500 years, 
had been taken out of the country, smuggled out of the country because he was one of the leaders in the confessing movement, smuggled out of the country and brought to the U.S. to a seminary because of the value of his mind and the world Christian community considered it too valuable to be lost. He stayed 27 days. As he paced in his hotel room in New York City, he never unpacked his bags, but he went back to the boat knowing that he would return to Germany and to his death. He said, I cannot leave the church alone. While my pastors are suffering, I cannot enjoy safety. And he returned. It's an amazing story. I encourage you to read the book. But you understand the things that we're hearing today trouble me in America. And I think as that stirring begins to stir, I've come to understand that there's something outside of me that's calling out to something inside of me to arise to the challenge of our day. We are being tuned in. This is what I believe we're going to be facing and and what we're going to see happening in the days ahead. The Holy Spirit is going to begin to tune us in so he can turn us up and so he can send us out. But look at your neighbor and say, you've got to be willing to go all in. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm going to give you one more try at that. Somebody look at somebody and say, you've got to be willing to go all in. Do you think because we're in America that there may not come a time that we have to push all the proverbial chips into the middle of the table and say, God, I'm going to have to make a decision. Am I going to, am I going to succumb to the pressure of the age and the demonic spirits of this age that want to silence the voice of Christ and deny the power of the Holy Spirit? Or am I going to stand as the early apostles did and say, whether we do this or not, you decide whether it's a good politically correct thing to not. But all I can tell you is what I know, that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. He died a sinner's death was raised three days later and offers hope and deliverance who all struggle with sin you don't have to stay in sin you don't have to stay in homosexuality you don't have to stay in perversion you don't have to stay addicted to alcohol or drugs you can be free by the power of Jesus Christ we have to be willing to say we cannot counsel that out of you we've got to cast that out of you in Jesus name There's something inside of us that's calling out to something inside of us to face the challenges of the day. What will have to happen before the church locks arms and stands up and is counted? What will happen? How bad will it have to get before we say enough? How bad? What how many million children will have to die before we join the efforts to stop abortion? How long will it be before we quit believing the lie that, oh, that's not a big deal, that's just, that's a medical procedure. How long is it going to be? How long will God allow the church to sit on our pews as if it doesn't matter? That's a civil matter. That's a governmental issue. Listen, the sanctity of life is not a political football. It's a moral issue that is born from the heart of the Creator. In Colorado, just this week, a lawsuit was lost with a baker. Whether you read that on on your news reports, it didn't make the headline news on the major networks. 
but a lawsuit was lost. A man who's been in business for 41 years, 41 years, lost a lawsuit because a homosexual couple who had married in another state, because in Colorado it's illegal for same-sex marriage, went to Massachusetts, got married, but they wanted to celebrate their reception in Colorado, went to his private business to buy a, a wedding cake. His response to them by their own admission was very kind. He offered to sell us anything in the store. But he said he, because he is a Christian and does not believe in same-sex marriage, could not participate in our wedding process. Sounds reasonable, doesn't it? They went out and filed suit. It came before the Civil Rights Commission in Colorado. And guess who lost? The baker lost. The court ordered him to change his policy immediately and demanded that every employee in his business submit to two years of reorientation counseling. Are y'all in the room with me today? That's not in Moscow. That's not in Leningrad. That's not in, in, in Beijing. That was in the United States of America. He said, my 87-year-old mother, this is the baker's response, my 87-year-old mother cannot be rehabilitated. <laughs> he also has to submit quarterly reports proving that he has not refused service to any same-sex couples, though it violates his conscience. They will close him down. How bad does it have to get before pulpits are filled with men and women around this nation that will say to their congregations, enough, enough. When I look around and see the condition of our nation, our polarized politics, our fragile economics, and our culture that is becoming increasingly hostile to our Christian faith, I feel something pulling me, something strong, something demanding a response, demanding that I come out from the shadows and be counting. Something needs to be said. Something needs to be done. Something new, different, something powerful. Something empowered by the power of the Holy Ghost. Something that's not just the conventional wisdoms of men's ideology or the conventional wisdom of the day. Something birthed in the heart of God, born on the power of the Holy Spirit, lifted to the world by the collective body of Christ, where we say in this earth, no. Mark Batterson in his new book, All In, says that sometimes to go all in, you have to be willing to go all out. Those moments push us off the bubble and out of the middle and off the fence and out of the shadows and into larger-than-life moments. I call them Todd Beamer, Flight 93, Let's Roll moments where we consider our lives to be lost for the sake of Christ anyway. Are you in the room? No one probably in this room wants to be a hero. I heard a man say, and I believe he's right, that heroes are not born, they're cornered. Do you understand that there's something rising up in my spirit? It's like deep answering to deep. It's like a magnet. 
It's like the magnet of God's Spirit connecting to the iron of my soul that's drawing me out of the shadows and out of the realms of I'd rather not get involved and I don't want to be polarizing and I, I don't want anyone to be offended with me. And I, I, are, are you in the room? Are you hearing what I'm saying today? Are you you're following my, my logic? These David and Goliath moments when David heard a giant defy the armies of the living God and knew that something had to be done. And she stood up and said, is there not a cause? And these prophet Daniel moments when he defied a court order to pray. Only 30 days. He only had to abstain from praying for 30 days. And he defied a court order and went to his Babylonian bungalow and effaced the Jerusalem of his heart. And three times a day fell down on his knees before God and called out to the God of heaven. Of course, he got thrown in the lion's den. But I love what Spurgeon said about Daniel. said the lions couldn't eat him. There wasn't anything there but backbone and grit. (laughs) How long has it been since you... I I read it again this morning. How, How long has it been since you read the rest of that story? Did you know that when Daniel took a stand for what he believed... God worked a miracle in his nation, brought the king to his knees, and those that had conspired against Daniel were the ones that wound up and their wives and children getting fed to the lions. It wasn't just about one man's deliverance. It was about a system of conspiracy that was destroyed because one man would dare to say, I don't care what you do to me. I'm going to pray three times a day. I won't wait 30 days. I won't wait 30 minutes. These moments, they are the three Hebrew boys moments when they said we may burn but we can tell you one thing, we will not bow our knees to an idol. They are Gideon army moments where 300,000, the horde of armies, 300,000 men are coming against 30,000 and they had the faith to stand while God pared their army down from 30,000 to 300. And God told Gideon exactly why, didn't he? He said, if I don't pare your army down, you'll think you won this battle. I've got to get it down to a manageable size. And I'm going to get it down to a size that when I I deliver you and you, you have this victory, you're going to know that there's no glory going to anyone with a sword. It's going to go to the heavenly father who had the sword of righteousness in his hand and won the victory. That's how you're going to know. Why must we be afraid? Why must we believe the lie that if we speak out in Jesus' name or we speak out against something that's politically incorrect that we're going to fall victim and be put out of business? Listen, it's going to take more than taking our money and taking our property to put the message of Jesus Christ out of business as long as there's a Christian and a believer who's got breath in their lungs and the courage to stand up and say Jesus is Lord of all. Listen, the church cannot be silenced, but we can be talked out of speaking if we're not careful. These David and Goliath moments, these Daniel moments, these three Hebrew boy moments, these Gideon's army moments, these Elijah on Mount Carmel moments where in in 1 Kings chapter 18, the prophet rolled the dice, forgive the metaphor, forgive it, but it pushed all the chips into the middle of the table and said, I'll tell you how we'll decide who's really God. Let the God who answers by fire be God. Y'all bring some water and wet my sacrifice down. That's bodacious right there. 
And it borders, it borderlines on you know, like contempt. It's like, uh, who's your daddy now? You wait and see. I'll show you who your daddy is. Moments. Pushing us off the bubble. Pushing us off the fence. The church needs to get pushed off the fence. The church needs to get aggravated. The church needs to get stirred up. We're in, we're in our sacred halls with stained glass windows speaking in tongues when we need to be out saying, no, no, I, I'll run for all. We had a young man here that ran for office. He's going to keep running because you're going to win, Phil, one of these days, and God's going to use you. It's a spiritual thing. The enemy's trying to silence your voice, but he's not going to silence your voice for long because good people are going to rise up and start voting. Are you all in the room? So you're not supposed to endorse a candidate. I, I'm just endorsing a friend. Maybe there's some candidates that need to be endorsed. Maybe there's some time that the church goes to the voting records and starts saying, well, wait a minute, what does this candidate stand for? Forget parties. We need to vote Jesus. We need to vote the Word of God. Amen. So y'all, y'all never heard Brother Brassfield talk like that. <laughs> Those moments that demand a response and test what we really believe and who we really are. These 80-year-old Moses moments when God says, go to the palace of the most powerful nation and the most powerful man on the earth and say to him, the God of heaven says, let my people go. In Exodus chapter 7, verse or chapter 7 through chapter 11, the story unfolds during the encounter as Moses demanded the freedom to allow Israel to go and worship God in the wilderness. In that process, listen, this is the heart of my message, so my introduction's out of the way, and I'll wrap this up in a moment. He encounters four negotiations with Pharaoh that each of us must navigate as we wrestle with the pressure of the world that wants to put us in bondage to its ways thinking, and culture. You understand because it is the spirit of Antichrist that has been in the earth since Lucifer fell. Because it is the spirit of Antichrist, it, re, it, it, it reveals itself again and again in the same modus operandi. God sends Moses in to Pharaoh's court again. And before the court, he demands freedom for the Jewish slaves. On what authority? It's legal. But it's not morally right because a higher court has decreed that they should be freed. Moses walked in with the authority of a higher court and he brought Pharaoh to account before God. He brought Pharaoh to account before God. And in that process, Pharaoh negotiates four options with Moses. J. Oswald Sanders outlines these well in his book, Spiritual Leadership. In his book, Pharaoh is a type of the world seeking to compromise the convictions of righteous Moses. Moses insists on doing things God's way, but Pharaoh suggests four options, each a compromise that fell short of God's command. Interestingly enough, if Moses had have settled for any of them, the nation would have never known freedom. Moses said to Pharaoh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has said, let my people go that they may worship me in the wilderness. And these were the four suggestions that Pharaoh offered as alternatives to that stark 
command. Number one, everybody say number one. He says, and I'm paraphrasing, you can see it in Exodus 7, 25. If you must worship God, do it here. I mean, if you're a religious people, do it here in Egypt. No need to go so far away from the world that you get too focused on God. Say a little prayer, if you will. Occasionally attend a service, but stay here among us. Make your home with us. Sure, it's slavery, but it's secure. Uh, Sure, it's slavery, but you want to be careful if you rock the boat. Sure, it's slavery, but you might convince someone that you're a fanatic. You don't want to be crazy, right? Can't we all just get along? The second suggestion that Pharaoh offered was when Moses said, no, actually, I'm not going to do that. God didn't, listen, God didn't tell me to do that, and I have no authority to do what I think is right. I have only the authority to do what God commanded me to do because I don't speak for myself. I speak for God. Seems like that might be a good approach for the church to take, that we do not have the authority to do what we think is right. We have only the authority to exist based on the degree that we're willing to surrender to what God's Word says. I have no authority in this culture apart from what the, the Word of God said. I believe every single word of what the Word of God says. Hold me in contempt of court and culture if you must, but I have to do what God's Word says. It is my only foundation on which to stand. Beyond that, I'm simply a citizen with opinions and ideas, but put a Bible in my hand, and if I speak in accordance to the power of the Holy Spirit and on the authority of God's Word, I become an oracle for God. I become an ambassador of a different nation. A lot of us have made this world our portion But I think it was James Strong that did the concordance that said this world is our passage, not our portion. This world is designed to just get you from where you are to where God wants you to be. Don't settle for Sodom. Don't make your allegiances and your alliances with Sodom. Don't allow yourself to be rocked into joining a club that's on its way to hell. Who wants a high-class job on a sinking ship? Who wants to be captain of the Titanic? Y'all seen the movie? Y'all know how it ends? It's a cold end. I think that's the hardest part for me about that movie. A drowning's one thing. I can't imagine that. But it's those ice cold waters. I'm cold natured. I just, I shiver. I won't watch the movie. Kath wouldn't let me watch it anyway. She likes to watch happy Hallmark kind of stuff. And it's okay. It's good for us. She's a good force and influence. If you must worship God, do it here. How long is it going to be before the church stands up? What has, how bad does it have to get? Worship God here. You can do it in Egypt. What's special about the wilderness? Moses says, no, we're going to do it because God said do it. Then Pharaoh, his second response was, okay then, if you have to go, don't go far. Exodus 7, 28. Make sure that you're close enough to find your way back if it gets difficult. Remember, you can trust Egypt to supply your needs. We're here for you. We're going to take care of you and, 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 and I'll see, my government will see that it's all right. Yes, you'll be a slave, but it's better to survive as a slave than to die free. 
If you have to go, we'll, we might let you go, but make sure that you don't go so far that you can't see us nor feel our influence. And, of course, Moses rejected that as well. Everybody say number three. You're a quiet group this morning. You okay? Moses said, no, we have to go far. You have to go far. Well, in Exodus 10, if you, listen, oh, man. If you have to go far, then leave your wives and children behind. I mean, you can be a fanatic and all, but don't put that on your wife and your children and your family. Don't make your family submit to your madness. If you're going to go, and you're going to go into the wilderness because God's called you, I mean, if you're going to draw that line in the sand, well, you go, but you leave your children and your wives behind. Leave your wives and children with us. We'll take care of them. And of course, uh, you know, you, we know you'll come back to us once you've left your families behind. So we'll teach your children while you're gone. We'll, we'll teach them about balance and tolerance and the equality of all religions. And, and, of, and, and of course, you know, the truth as we see it. We'll take care of your wives. And yes, they'll be our slaves. But, but you'll at least know where they are when you get finished with this spiritual experience. Moses said, not a, not a chance. You understand if we're not careful, those of us who are leading the church will make that commitment, but then we'll allow our children and our wives and our families to stay in Egypt. Why, why do we have, when you come to a Destiny Conference, we have the lights raging and we have very relevant Music, you know why? Because we want to connect with young people. I'm already saved. I'm already sold out. And I refuse to worship myself on the altar of my personal preferences. And in the process, sacrifice my children on that altar on which I worship myself. We could probably go through this room and every single one of us have a little different variation of the style of music and worship that we like. But you know, worship is not about you. We're not worshiping you. <laughs> Look at your neighbor and say, can I say amen to that? <laughs> is, it okay? is it okay if I say amen to that? I have my preference. I, there's a little, there's a little George Strait in me. <laughs> Emphasis on the straight. <clears throat> no, there's a little George Strait in me. I, I, we all have our preferences, but you, you know, sometimes we make worship so much about us that we leave our children behind. It's sad, but it's true. I think it was Tony, no, we're not doing that here at the church. Uh, I think it was Tony Evans, the great African-American pastor, Baptist pastor, who made that statement for the last two generations through tradition, the church has sacrificed their children on the altar of their personal preferences, making themselves worshipers of themselves as idols. Instead of willing to say, what does the language of the culture speak? And let's make sure that we boldly declare Jesus Christ and the resurrection through that language. 
You must go far, then leave your families behind. I knew coming to preach this message that I might systematically offend and alienate most people. But I've got to practice what I preach. Everybody say number four. Moses responded to Pharaoh and said, no, we're not leaving our families behind. Not going to do it. And and embedded in all this negotiation was God bringing Pharaoh to his knees, you understand. It wasn't just this little platonic. No, every time Pharaoh rejected God's command, God brought him to his knees through another plague. Made him a little bit more softened. Heaven's artillery softened the troops so that there could be an advancement. And then Moses would come back and say, God said this. And Pharaoh would say, well, how about this? Well, how about that? And he'd say, no. And and there would be another sequence and another judgment of God until eventually... The last negotiation in Exodus 10. Okay, so if you must go and you must go far and you must take your families, leave your possessions. See, there's a principle there. Jesus said, for where your treasure is, is where your heart will be also. And he was so right. We are always, we are always emotionally attached to the things that we've accumulated through sacrifice and difficulty. The Israelites were slaves and had lost most of everything except a few things that they were dependent on for survival. The world always knows if they can get our stuff that they'll eventually get our heart. Pharaoh knew that if he could talk Moses and the children of Israel into leaving their stuff behind, they would come back to Egypt. And I love what Moses responded. It's a famous quote. He says, we will leave not so much as one hoof behind. Stand with me, would you? When I think about the cost of everything, I finally figured it out. (laughs) I've been thinking about it for weeks. What is the cost of everything? Well, it's not one quadrillion dollars. Maybe that's the price tag the world would put on it. But for the church, I believe the cost of everything is everything. the message of the rich young ruler that came to Jesus and said what must I do and Jesus said sell what you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me the cost of everything is everything God doesn't God doesn't mind for you to have money as long as he controls it through you to accomplish his purpose God wants to bless you but I do believe we've entered an era where there must be those who are willing to step forward and pay the price of everything if necessary. It's a high price, yes. But in this age that we're in, it is one that we cannot afford not to pay. Hear me, saints. I said in this age, with the environment we're in right now, everything is a high price, but it is one that we cannot afford not to be willing to pay. I was reading, I love to study war heroes, and there's a man you've probably never heard of named Martin Treptow, a young and obscure American private, and he was killed in France in World War I. He was written into the American history books by President Ronald Reagan during his, one of his inaugural addresses, where toward the end of his address, President Reagan spoke of monuments of heroism with a struggle to control his voice. I watched that speech early this morning 
on the internet. And it was amazing to see President Reagan's voice breaking and quivering with a struggle to control his voice. He drew attention to the sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery with its row upon row of simple white markers. Under such a marker lies a young man named Martin Treptow who left his job as a barber in a small town barbershop in 1917 to go to France and became part of the famed Rainbow Division. After he was killed, a diary was found in his pocket in which he had inscribed the following pledge. This young man wasn't a general, he was a private. He says in his journal, stained with his own blood, America must win this war. Therefore, I will work, I will save, I will sacrifice, I will endure, I will fight cheerfully to do my best as if the issue of the whole struggle and the winning of the war was dependent on me alone. How would revival break out in our churches if we, before we take on the government, if we would just say, I'm going to bring revival to this church and act as if it was my sole responsibility. If it was dependent upon me alone, those kinds of commitments might wind up being stained with your own blood. But I do believe this. I believe that it will produce a generation that is unstoppable. And it will produce a veracity in the message that's unquenchable. And it will set forth a truth that's irrefutable. And I believe that there is a rising taking place. Something outside of me is speaking to something inside of me, demanding that I do something. One last story. Did you know this has happened historically before? This is not the first generation that has faced incredible, destructive world calamities and issues. But God is always preparing people to be that Daniel, to be that Moses, to be that Joshua. Even in the secular arena, the year was 1915 and the world was at war. It was the first of its kind. For the first time, technology had developed in travel and communication to the point that the entire world could be involved in a conflict. Yet with all the technological advances, even in 1915, the fighting was as barbaric as any war in history. Trenches were being dug in Europe, and they often became graves for those who fought from them. Artillery shells were punishing, pulverizing, and de depleting the morale of armies on each side, and a new phenomenon was introduced, weapons of mass destruction. It was the war to end all wars. So it was called. But little did the unsuspecting world know that a force much more sinister was fomenting in Germany. And in a little over two decades, the Third Reich would emerge with an intention to destroy freedom and world domination. Listen, almost finished. But did you know years before the Third Reich became a horrible reality, the coming crisis was speaking to something inside an emerging generation of leaders. A case in point... 
Case in point was the graduating class of West Point, 1915. Did you know that class included 164 graduates? That wasn't unique. That had happened before. West Point was one of the leading military schools in the nation, perhaps the world. But history would come to declare on this class, it was the class upon whom the stars had fallen. You know why? Because that 164 graduates became 59 generals. It was a historical anomaly. It had never happened before, and it has never happened since. Two reached the rank of five-star general, two four-star generals, seven three-star lieutenant generals, 24 two-star major generals, and 24 one-star brigadier generals. It produced Dwight Eisenhower, one of the five-star generals who would become the 34th president of the United States. Years before they would be called upon to defend freedom, God was raising up a generation prepared for war. Not only is this Pentecost Sunday, it's also the weekend that we celebrate the D-Day invasion. I I wanted to bring this word to you today because I believe that in this generation, something out there is speaking to something in here. And a new generation, not just young people, but a new generation of people who are willing to go all in, even if it means we have to go all out, are going to rise up and say, Enough. Enough. If you're here today and you want to be counted in that number, even though we don't, any of us, fully understand what that means, but you want the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember what Peter, when he was brought before the court, the Scripture says, and being filled with the Holy Spirit. So when I open these altars and say, you should be filled with the Holy Spirit, it's not just so you can have goosebumps and tingle and have an emotional, spiritual even experience. It's so that you can be equipped by God himself to be in this generation what he's calling you to be. To be in this generation what we need you to be. When I open these altars and say be filled with the Holy Spirit, I'm not trying to make a Pentecostal out of you. I'm trying to help you be equipped for the battle that's raging around us where you will have that spiritual understanding to know what to say when you ought to say it and what to act and how to act when you ought to act and what moves to make and you're able to make those strategic decisions. That's what the power of the Holy Spirit brings. If that's you and you want it and you want to be filled and full of the Holy Spirit, I want you to step out from where you stand and we're going to have a prayer. I want you to just come and join. Wow, our time has slipped away and you've been very patient. Thank you. But we're going to pray. That's the first time I've looked at my clock. I'm sorry. But I don't apologize for the word. Help me, Lord, be willing to go all in. Kath, would you come up, honey, and just join me up? Just just come up here. There, There has to be a moment where we have the spirit of Joshua come on us that says, as for me and my house, 
I can't speak for Washington. I can't speak for Hollywood. I can't speak for Wall Street. I can't even speak for you. But I can speak for us. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Whether it's politically correct or accepted or not, we're going to serve the Lord. If your spouse is in the altar with you, would you get near them and just take them by the hand and let's, let's do this together. I want you just to slip your hand up and, and let's set ourselves in agreement. Lord, align us. Assign us. Lord. God, align us with your truth. Lord, set a fire in our soul that can't be stopped. Lord, let us be so ignited with your authority and your anointing that, Lord, we're known, first of all, by love and kindness, but being absolutely unwavering in our commitment to what the Word of God says and what the truth is in you. Lord, I look at these men who stood before tribunals and courts. They're recorded all over the Scripture. I look at them and they're heroes to me, but Lord, I pray that God, you would make me a hero if necessary to you. I'm not concerned with the opinions of men, Lord, but I want to please you. I want you to pray that prayer with me. Will you just lift your hands and begin to pray a prayer something like that, would you? Lord, as for our family, God, we're going to, fall in your, we're going to walk in your paths, Lord. We're going, to, we're going to believe what you believe. We're going to say what you say. Lord, we're going to be conduits of the power of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we're going to trust you to empower us, Lord, with the grace of God and the power of God to speak in a wicked and perverse generation the truth of God. Lord, make us Daniels. Make us Joshua's. Make us Moses, Lord. Make us Elijah's God who will walk into the court of, of Ahab and say, according to my word, it's not going to rain. God, I pray that you would raise up men and women of God, even in this fellowship, that will stand in the power and in the unction of the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit will speak boldly the truth of God before the courts of men. Lord, let there be families. God, let there be repentance in this altar. Let, God, I repent for every time that I've pulled a punch and I haven't stepped out and I haven't spoken. I repent, God, before you for every time I failed to do this. Then, God, be what you... Every time I've grieved the Holy Spirit. And Lord, I repent today before this congregation and I ask, Lord, that by your grace you will help me to know. And Holy Spirit, I invite you to take over. Possess me. I want to be possessed by your Spirit a habitation for you Lord a habitation for you Father we as a people set ourselves in agreement in Jesus mighty name in Jesus mighty name well would you give the Lord a hand clap of praise do you receive the word of the Lord today amen how many know God's word is always good always good